there was a, a billboard you've probably seen in the community for one of the resorts, and um, it, it has pictures on it, three pictures with, with three words. It says, dine, stay, play, or dine, play, stay. Yeah, dine, play, stay. And that's a good, can be a good effective advertising tool to take just one word or a couple of words and connect it with a picture. And so people get the idea that's a fun place. I can eat there. I can have fun there. I can stay there and I will enjoy all those things at that particular resort. And that's a need or a desire that we have in a variety of ways in life, not just for a weekend getaway or for a vacation, but to have food together. To play in the broadest sense of the word play. In other words, to enjoy what this world has to offer and to stay, that is to, to connect and, and to, um, to build relationships, to, to enjoy what God has given. Now, at one level, those are things that we desire for ourselves and can to some limited extent be experienced apart from God, but to fully gain what it means to have real fellowship, what it means to have real connection with God, what it means to have um, a, a way to stay in relationship with God and with others. We need the Spirit of God in us that came on that first day of Pentecost, or not the first day, but the day of Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection, when the apostles were gathered in Jerusalem, when we looked in detail in the last two weeks at the first, the first portion of this, this letter, uh, the second chapter of Acts, excuse me. And here is the result. Now, just quick review. The apostles were gathered together, waiting as Jesus instructed them. And then what sounded like wind, but there was no wind, but there was a sound, and there was what looked like tongues of fire. They weren't literal tongues of fire, but that was the description. Came upon the apostles gathered in that room, and they were given the ability to speak a language they never knew before, but it was a language that was known to people gathered in that city because there was a festival of Pentecost, and Jews came from all over the world, and most people were multilingual, so they understood what the local language was and would normally be, but also their own language from the place they traveled from. And it lists that in the early verses here of Acts chapter 2, a lot of those places. And then Peter stood up and explained what's going on as thousands of people gathered to, to see this strange phenomena, what's happening. And he explained it from the scriptures. He explained it from the prophets. He explained it from, from David, the son of David, that, that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of their hopes of Messiah, son of David, as we looked at last week. But he came and looked at them basically and said, and you killed him. You wanted this Messiah for generations, for centuries, and he came and you killed him. And yet that was God's plan. That was God's will. But now, what are you going to do about it? And it says here in the 37th verse, they were cut to the heart. They recognized that they were responsible for putting to death the one that God had sent. And yet, there is still hope on the other side of that. Because this Jesus, as we looked at last week, 
did not stay in the grave. He was indeed alive, and he was alive for them. And they said, the end of that 37th verse, brothers, what shall we do? Look at those apostles. What shall we do? You've given us the word. You've given us this explanation. You, you've told us how it connects to the prophets and, and to David. What do we do about it? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and for all for whom the Lord, will, our God, will call. It's interesting when you look at the kind of components and various descriptives of what the gospel message is and the receiving of the gospel message, salvation, all those words. If you have any connection with the church or grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with those. But there's not necessarily a direct order. Like right here, it says, repent, be baptized, the Spirit. But other times the Spirit comes, and then there's baptism later. There's baptism first, and then the Spirit comes. And now, now all of it has to involve repentance. It has to be a turning, a changing of direction away from God to God. And then God brings in these various aspects of the the salvation message, because it, it happens this way here, as we'll see going forward through Acts, it happens in, in other ways, in other times and places. So it's not the order that matters here, it's what's included. And repentance, that turning, the, the baptism, the, the, the physical sign for the inward reality of what's going on spiritually when a person turns to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, died and risen for them, and accepts in faith that that is for them, and they believe that. And receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, while the Spirit came and gave this particular use of, of language for the apostles on that day, when the crowd got it, there's no indication that they got the same thing, but they did get the Holy Spirit. So there's, it, it's just, we need to... Take in faith that when we come to Jesus, when we believe, His Spirit is in us. His Spirit lives us and breathes in us and, and, and begins to, to emerge more and more in our lives. That's what we want to see happen in us. And then the 40th verse says, With many other words He warned them and He pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted His message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Day. Now, I want to focus mostly this morning on the last few verses here. And um, all the believers were together. They devoted themselves, it says. <clears throat> they devoted themselves to... Now, before we look at what they devoted themselves to, what exactly that is, um, there was... That word, there is that word, devoted. What are you devoted to? In a very open kind of way. What do you need to be devoted to? What are you devoted to and perhaps you shouldn't be? Or you're giving it too much attention. It's easy to say something like, Christians today or the people in the church need to be more devoted. And we all stand there and shake our heads, yup, and that's me, and maybe there's a tinge of guilt there, and oh, i got to get more devoted, more devoted. 
And, and that's a good moment to, to kind of have that, that turning maybe, that if, if there's repentance there has to happen, that's great. But the thing is, if you don't make room for devotion by, by making being a little less devoted somewhere else and maybe entirely eliminated in some cases so that there's more space in your heart to be devoted to God. And that's really where it drives us to, to, to recognize that devotion is a heart issue. What is my heart really after? What do I desire the most? Yes, we can and should be devoted to our family. Yes, we need to be at some level devoted to our job. We, we need people that... that work hard and, and, and show up with a good attitude. So many businesses um, don't have enough workers right now. Linda and I were down in Lancaster yesterday. There was one of the restaurants that said, um, urgently in big orange letters, need employees. Or, <laughs> urgently, hiring. urgently hiring or something like that. Yeah, and, and that's, that's happening right now, which is kind of a strange thing when uh, a few years back there was you know, a lot of unemployment and now... There's not enough people to fill all the work somehow. But, so we, we need to be devoted to what we're given to do to, to you know, raise money for our, our family and the needs in our lives. And there's devotion to, um, to causes that's good and important. But is there room in all these various zones of devotion in your heart for the church? And more to the point, if, the, if, you, if we are devoted to the church, then maybe those other things can be transformed to be part of your expression toward God, or you realize, you know what, I don't really need that anymore. That's not as important. Devoted themselves to, this is the beginning of the church. If you were to ask the average Christian what the church is about, I hope they have a ready answer, ready to go answer. Different churches have mission statements or catchphrases, if you will, to sort of encapsulate that on our sign out here and on our bulletin every week. It says three words. Anybody know what those three words are? Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> hope, heal, and help. That encompasses what Bushville Community Church is all about. Okay, and that's that's what that's us. And other churches will put it some some other way. Now, all churches that truly believe in Jesus Christ, died and risen, connect back to this first church, this first day, these first days, weeks, and months that the church existed anywhere was right here in Jerusalem. So it's good for us once in a while, any church, all churches, to pause and go back to all of our roots and say, how did it begin? Catherine was asking me last week about roots of various denominations. And, and, and we were talking about that. Catherine and I share a love for history. And so we, we had a great conversation after worship last week about, um, wow, you have so many denominations. And why did this one divide when? And what was going on there and there and there? And, you know, I'm not sure. I don't really think this is what Jesus had in mind to have 40,000 denominations worldwide. Um, but nonetheless, it doesn't mean that, you know, most of them, hopefully, are still genuinely worshiping Christ and wanting to serve Him. But all of us pull back and go back to this church right here. What were they devoted to? And then bring that back into our situation. 
They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's the first thing they say. In Mark and all the other Gospels, when the, the story of Jesus begins and he begins his travels and he, he starts to, um, you know, after, after the baptism, after his baptism, after John the Baptist died, basically, he really went out in earnest daily and collected his disciples and he would go from town to town and teach. Yes, he did miracles. Yes, he cast out demons. Yes, he confronted a corrupt authority. He did a lot of things. But his main goal, he even says it himself, when he went from place to place, was to teach the kingdom of God. So when it says here in Matthew chapter 28, this is the probably familiar with this if you're familiar with the New Testament. This is the Great Commission. So the last words that Jesus had, among several things he said, um, before he ascended into heaven. This is after his death and resurrection, just before this event in Acts 2, okay, the, the uh, Pentecost. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, the early church, the first church, was dedicated to teaching. Where did the apostles get that teaching? From Jesus. What did Jesus want them to teach? Okay, the Great Commission says, teach everything I've commanded you. What did he command? All right, let's go to John 15. John 15, and that is down at verse 9. <clears throat> because was Jesus just about commanding a, a newer, greater effort to obey the law? Was it Ten Commandments? Every day, all the time? Is that it? Now I've died and risen again, so now you can do this. Was it about law and rules and, and adherence to all of that? Or was it something else? It is. And it's right there in John, in Jesus' own words. He says in, uh, again, beginning at 9 of John. I'm on the wrong page. John chapter 15. <clears throat> As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Couldn't be plainer, could it? Okay. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. And he reiterates the same thing in case you missed it the first time, 17th verse. This is my command. Love each other. That is the essence of Jesus. To know how much God has loved you and then pass that love on to other people. Even before he died and rose again, that was true. Because when the, the Pharisees tested him and said, what is the greatest command? His answer was to love God and to love others, basically. And so all of Jesus' other teachings 
flow from that desire. The Sermon on the Mount is filled with love for God expressed in the Beatitudes and in, in, in the way that you, the, the attitudes that you take on in your heart and mind. Matthew chapter 5. And the sixth chapter, he, he begins addressing things that you've heard it said, but I say, if you're, if you're depending on law to, to impress God, to appease God, to be, to be accepted by God forever because you're good enough, well, guess what? Your outward lack of murdering someone in God's eyes falls apart because if you hate someone in his eyes, that's just as bad. Your outward lack of committing adultery in the world's eyes might be okay, but your lust in your heart is what God sees, so you've also committed that. So Jesus is, is tearing down the whole law structure right before their hearts and lives and basically says in the end, be perfect as my Father is perfect, but that's not the way you have to go. You don't have to be perfect. And then it, it, he draws them back, and I can get into the whole Sermon on the Mount thing. That's an awesome chapter, three chapters. So what are they teaching? They're teaching Sermon on the Mount. They're teaching the parables that he told. Thirty or so parables, scholars differ on how they define what parable is. Some have a very uh, kind of a wider definition of it where a lot of short sayings of Jesus could be considered a parable. And if that's the case, there could be as many as 200 but most scholars just narrow it down to a, a shorter list when he tells a story of some kind, like the Good Samaritan, like the Prodigal Son, those parables. So they would tell those parables in their teaching. They would talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which you'll find 85 times in the written Gospels. Now, at this point, let me remind you, if you don't know this, in Acts chapter 2, and for a long, 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 long time after that, they didn't have this. So how did they teach? Wow. There's apostles that saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, and they remember, and Jesus promised them that the Spirit would remind them, but, but please hear this. It's not like the Holy Spirit comes and goes, pow, you have all 27 books memorized in your brain, now go and spew them out to the world. No, because if that were true, why did Jesus spend three years teaching them? Why did Jesus spend all that time uh, sometimes getting aggravated with these fishermen <laughs> and the others among them about how they weren't getting it? Because they needed to learn. They needed to learn the hard way sometimes. So the Spirit's job is to, now hear this, to remind us what has already been put in there. And in their case, it was their experiences. Now, if you grew up like I did, learning this book, so the Spirit reminds me of what I put in. That's not to say God can't, in His Spirit, give you something that you haven't heard before in, in a moment, in some kind of revelation. I think that does happen, but that's the exception, not the rule. The rule is simply that, that God will draw on what, what we've, as it says in Psalms, your word I have hidden in my heart. We, we practice we practice the word in the sense of, of we learn it, we memorize it, we know it. So all of these apostles early on didn't have a book to turn to. They eventually wrote it down for us, thankfully. But they had the oral testimony. They had the eyewitnesses. That's what they were teaching. And also the connection with what we call the Old Testament. And even that, yes, there was a written Various copies somewhere of what we now call Genesis to Malachi. 
All right? But it wasn't like every Pharisee had a copy on his shelf at home. <laughs> Hardly. In the temple in Jerusalem, they probably maybe had all of the copies, not necessarily. Because sometimes the copies were taken by some of the priests to their back to their hometown synagogue to read there. So your local synagogue may have had a little bit of Isaiah um, and, and a fair bit from the law because that's what they wanted to focus on. But you get the idea? We are so blessed to have all of this written down for us in our language and in multiple English translations. And we can get it very easily now on these little devices and back then, that was not the case. And yet, the gospel went forth, and in some ways, it went forth better and more effectively than it is now, even with all of that at our disposal. They also devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, if I say fellowship to the average Christian, their first thought is, food! <laughs> and that's right. And it's wrong. Or it's partial. Okay? And, and we'll look at that. So, so I, I, I want to spend a couple of minutes here about what the word fellowship in Acts 2.42 is. And that's the word koinonia. And koinonia is a complicated word. Maybe if you've studied the Bible over the years, you've heard that word before. Okay? It means all of these things. All right? It means communion. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, when Paul is, is, is referencing the Lord's Supper, he uses the word koinonia, when you get together for the Lord's Supper koinonia. Okay, so, so that's one meaning. There's another one in 2 Corinthians 9, 13, when he's telling, encouraging them to, to collect an offering for another group of Christians who were having a tough time. He called the sharing of your wealth koinonia. Okay, so that's another one. Then there's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's often something that people pray. It's the closing words of 2 Corinthians at 13, 14. You know, God bless you and... No, that's the wrong one. Uh, let's turn to that because I, I love how this rolls, rolls out. It's, it's um, 2 Corinthians. Again, the end of the chapter, the, the end of the book, the very the closing words of 2 Corinthians. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, a, a, a benediction prayer. Well, the word fellowship of the Holy Spirit, fellowship is also the word koinonia. So which is it? Hmm. Well, then you get to 1 John. And, and this, where, this is where I, I want us to focus the most on in terms of what is being pointed to here in Acts 2 as a goal for this church, as a goal for every church. So in other words, what does fellowship, koinonia, look like? 1 John chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have testified... <clears throat> We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, koinonia. 
So for the rest of the time, it's just going to substitute the word koinonia when I see fellowship, all right? And our koinonia is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have koinonia with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all righteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So all the times you see the word fellowship in there, it is the same word in 1 John. It is this collective communal faith that, that brings the church together. Now that can happen, and it should happen in a meal, but it's certainly not limited to that, because the next thing they are devoted to is the breaking of bread. Fellowship, that is koinonia, doesn't happen just because we eat together. Only as the body and blood of Jesus is remembered, both ritually and foundationally, Will we be living in true fellowship with God and with one another? What I mean by that, at parentheses there, the, the ritual, I know sometimes Christians run from that word, okay? But communion is a ritual. It's a good ritual. Now, a ritual can be empty and, and feel pointless and dumb, or ritual can be life-enriching, a good reminder, which is exactly what communion is. It's a reminder that the body of Jesus was broken, the blood of Jesus was shed for us. And it takes bread and the cup to remind us of that. We are forgetful people because people are forgetful. And if we stopped doing that, we would lose Jesus somewhere in history. That's why he told us, as often as you do this means get together and do it regularly. He didn't set a schedule for us. You know, some churches, it's every time they worship, and I get that. Other churches, it's like ours once a month or so. Others, it's about oh, four times a year. That's the church I grew up in. I often wish I did it more than that. But in other words, on a regular basis, you are remembering the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the meaning behind it. Now, um, so ritually, you practice that as a church. We need to practice that. But the meaning foundationally of it should undergird all of our activity, all of, of, of what we do is because Jesus broke his body, shed his blood, forgave our sins, rose from the grave. If, he, if that didn't happen, there's no point to the fellowship dinner. There's no point to having the kids come here in a couple of weeks and teaching them what? Teaching them nice stories? about some good people, some fun stuff that happened a long time ago. Let Disney do that. They do a good job at it. But we're not teaching Disney. We're teaching the word of God that is rooted in the ritual and the foundation of the shed blood of Jesus for us. And that's what helps us to truly live in fellowship with each other. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. Give me your Bibles a workout today. 1 Corinthians 11. Um, <clears throat> if you're familiar with the book of Corinthians, um, both letters, but especially the first one, Paul is, is just having a real hard time with these believers, and he calls them babies. Um, flat out. 
<laughs> You're a bunch of babies, grow up. Uh, that's, that's the Paul Miller translation. <laughs> and, he, and that's the way he felt about it. It was, it was. And they had so many problems and issues, and one of them was with the Lord's Supper. And in the 11th chapter, he's addressing this, and um, he is concerned about how they were practicing the Lord's Supper. Now, understand this. Even back in Acts, when the church began, and it's apparent from within Scripture and even from sources outside of Scripture, that communion was a full meal for the church. They definitely had the bread and the cup, but then they also had other food to go with it. And presumably, they would begin with the bread and the cup in some kind of a ritual way that we remind people this is the bread broken for you and pass it among them. This is the cup, just like Jesus passed it among his disciples. And then they would go on and have the rest of their meal together. That was, and, it, and I think that's a good practice. I'm not suggesting we go back to that, although more meals would be good. You know, More people help make them, right, Cynthia? Yes. Alright. <laughs> but because getting together for food is wonderful and it's enriching and, and it's great. But in Corinth, when Paul wrote this, one of the issues the Corinthians had was to bring the ways of the world into their practice and their, their, their church life, basically. So if you lived in Corinth and throughout the Roman Empire, there was a very clear social structure established. And there was the rich people who had everything, and there was somebody below them, and we call them middle class, and there was some below them, and I'm not exactly sure how many tiers there were, but there was, you know, there were several. And then when there was a public meal, or especially if you had a home where you could host people for a meal, and there had to be a big home of people that could afford to do it, some of those people were in the church in Corinth. Some of the people in Corinth were apparently well-to-do. So when they threw... When they had the meal for the church and the church gathering, including communion, they would do what they always did for a public meal in their house. There was an upper section in their home, literally up higher, almost a stage, where all of the very fortunate and blessed and rich people would eat. There was a lower section where the rest of the people would eat, and there might have been people outside who weren't allowed to come in that would eat. Now, the people up there got all the really, really good food. They would eventually, if they felt enough kindness and weren't too drunk to think about it, pass down food to the ones below them, who would then in turn pass it out the door to the people waiting in the street. That was the way the culture worked. It wasn't good, but that's the way it was. And most people just kind of accepted that. You can't fight against it. Oh, well, we're not quite up on the upper crust, but we're not the lowest level of evil either. So hopefully we're going to get something to eat tonight. Now, that mentality comes into the church. So there's a meal, including communion, at you know someone's home in Corinth. And Paul's addressing the problem that was taking place at the 20th verse of 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For you are eating, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. Private supper, well-to-do. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. 
Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Yeah, he had every reason to be angry. you got to change. This is the church. We are all one. There is no more pecking order. There is no more social status. Let's welcome everyone. And I think our culture today has some lessons to learn there in various ways too. But, so you see here, just because there's food at the church doesn't mean it's real, genuine koinonia fellowship when there is the breaking of bread. And then the last one is prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer, and we could spend a whole series on prayer. I'll just give you this one verse. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people from Ephesians 6.18. Make prayer part of your life. Anybody here pray too much? You know, God told you to back off. (laughs) Probably not. So we all have something to learn and to grow in that. To, to keep making prayer. So, so when you take these together, what are the main priorities of the, of the early church, the first church? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to koinonia, genuine fellowship, to the breaking of bread, including communion, and to prayer. That was the essence of the church. Now, within all of those things, there was other stuff going on, okay? Even today, you take, for example, teaching. Okay, so we're going to... We're going to fulfill that when we have the kids camp here because we're going to teach children about Christ and his love for them. And the breaking of bread, we do that. We share the bread, the food with the community. But we also have the literal breaking of the bread in terms of communion here once a month. So we're still practicing these things. We're praying. So all of that is there. So my closing, as you look at this then, I'll wrap this up in a moment. The, the, the last few verses of of Acts 2 then say, say this from the, from the 43rd verse down. So this is, the, this is what happens when the church learns, communes, and prays together. Okay, Here's the result of a church being founded on those things. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So what did God do with a church that functions like this? Well, awesome stuff. Signs and wonders happen. Everything in common. They, they kind of came... To, together and said, you have a need, I'll help you out. There was a readiness then to meet the needs. Now it says here about selling property, it doesn't suggest that we shouldn't own things or own property, and if you do, you have to give it up and bring the money to the church. No, what it does mean is, if you are blessed with means, and there's someone in need, you can meet their need by, taking, by selling what you have potentially, or, or in another way, giving the value of that some form or another. Okay. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be people that have. It just means those that have should have a willingness to share, to meet needs that happen as they happen. And that's what was going on in the church there. They were ready to help one another. Um, and, and that's the way we are here at Bushwick Community, by the way. We've seen that so many times over the years. People are ready and willing to help when the need arises. Let's, let's 
keep that attitude and grow that attitude, keep it up. Um, they were eating gladly together. It didn't become the thing it did in Corinthians, uh, in Corinth. Um, praising God together. Uh, they met daily. Um, I, I'd love to see us do more here in this building than we have, okay? Not that we all have to meet every day, but various activities, more activities happening here with, with prayer and fellowship and learning and, and reaching out to community and all of that. The, the pandemic is winding down, so let's do more, okay? Amen? All right. And um, enjoying favor of everyone. This is, this is kind of a warning sign today. I, I think the church in America is not seen in favor by many. Now, if they're not seen in favor because they reject the Jesus we love, well, that's on them. But if, if we're not seen in favor because of, of political affiliation, well, that's not what God wants. I'll just say it flat out. But just set the politics aside. I don't see any politics here. Okay? I'm not saying they don't have their room at a certain place to express things and all of that, but what... what much of America sees right now, especially in what's known as the evangelical church of which, of which this church is part of in the broadest sense of that term, what America sees is, is not a, a loving group of people that wants to share and love them. And so that, that's now, now what we have to do then is work harder to show them, yeah, that's not us, Okay. We are the church that helps. We are the church that gives meals away. We are the church that's ready to do what we can to help our neighbor. We are the church that, that welcomes everyone. That's who we are. And, um, and there's just a study I saw this week about this, that how the evangelical church in America is shrinking. And it's shrinking faster than it has been. And what's called the mainline church in America is actually growing. If you know what mainline is, if you don't, I'll tell you later, okay? <laughs> all right? And there's lots of reasons for that. There's other things. But all that to say, enjoying favor, okay, means that we, what are we known for? What is Bush School Community Church known for? That's what we have to work on. I'm not saying we have a bad reputation. And I'm saying because the name evangelical is, is in our DNA, then people might resist. So we have to show them... Now, don't worry about the political way that people define that. Just look for the angel in the middle of the word. That's us. We're God's messengers. Amen? All right. And growth. God will bring the growth. So, let me... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. <laughs> I hit the wrong button. Um, my closing question, then, is very simply, what are you... How much are you ready to be devoted to... Christ, and if this is your church, those of you here today, I know some of you are new. Welcome to News Friends. I know there's people watching at home. This is your church, or maybe you have your own church. Some people from St. John's watch. Whatever your church is, are you ready to be more devoted? All the believers together at Bushville Community Church, let's let's work together toward that goal. We're good. Go ahead.